This morning's service, we want to consider the role of the woman. These are not popular things, but nonetheless, the Lord has commanded us to believe and to preach and to hear and submit ourselves to the Bible. And so we're going to preach the whole counsel of God. We had a birth this past week. And at a birth, there is a lot of suspense unless a woman is in love with x-ray equipment. There's suspense about the sex of the child. And God reminded us this week that He makes a sovereign choice and has made a sovereign choice about your sex and mine. If you're a girl or a woman this morning, God chose you to be a girl or a woman. And He gave plain precepts for how you can please Him. You were not asked if you wanted to be a girl or a woman. Your parents weren't asked and they weren't allowed to choose. And you can't change the fact. God made that choice. The blessed God of heaven chose that as you passed through the birth canal and were exposed to the world, everyone present quickly knew whether they had a son or a daughter. And God's chosen you girls and women to be women. And so it was God's choice to put you in this world as a woman, not a man. And in the second service, it will be God's choice to put men in this world And they're men and not women. Now, we've been studying the battle for the Bible. And I've ended that study. For those of you that would like to know more on that subject, I have plenty for you. It's a very exciting subject, and I would be happy to supply you with many books that you could read to establish yourself further in the preserved words of God in your King James Bible. But the importance of the Bible is not that we can thump our King James Bibles and be thankful that God has preserved them and that He's made fools of the editors of all the other Bible versions. The real proof is how we approach the Bible. What does it mean to us when it tells us to do things that we don't want to do? And so we have something this morning from the Word of God that is not popular and it's not preached hardly anymore, but we want to look at it. The Bible is the written opinion of God about how you girls and women should conduct yourselves in life. How you should relate to your husbands. All the opinions of all men. And any opinion of any man. And especially the opinions of all women have no value at all in comparison to the Word of God. God has spoken. We believe it. And that settles it for us. And that's where we want to leave it settled. Why is it good to preach on this subject, the role of a woman, when we have such a great group of women already? Well, a faithful minister is supposed to preach the whole counsel of God and not withhold anything that would be profitable. That's Acts chapter 20. No matter how good our women appear, they can always be better. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that though the Thessalonians abounded in love, Toward each other, he prayed and worked that they would abound yet more and more. God's glory is maximized when we fulfill our roles exactly as God gave them. God gets glory. That's why I'm preaching on it. Our relationship with God requires good relationships in our family. John the Baptist was sent as the Elijah the prophet 
to prepare a people for the Lord. And how was He to prepare that people? But to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Family relationships are necessary for a good relationship with God. And doesn't the Bible tell us, even in 1 Peter chapter 3, that your prayers will be hindered if you're a man and you don't remember that your wife is the weaker vessel? Virtuous women living the glorious lives that God ordained for them are a great presentation of the gospel in the world. That's why I'm preaching on it. Virtuous women living glorious and functional lives condemn the world and all their newfangled opinions on how marriage ought to be. And women, you're only going to find true happiness and fulfillment in life by submitting yourself to the role God chose for you and the way God chose that role should be fulfilled. You will be frustrated. You will be disappointed. You will be discontent if you do not humble yourself to what I'm going to tell you this morning from God's Word. Functional homes result in happy husbands, happy children, and happy grandchildren. Great, wonderful families come from men and women following the Bible's rules for their relationship. Another reason why I'm preaching on this subject, because once you step outside this door, there is hardly any reminder for you to follow the Bible. The world's opposed to the Bible, and most of Christianity today is opposed to the Bible. If they were to preach the whole counsel of God and what it says about the role of the woman, their congregations would shrink drastically. They would be decimated. They might be annihilated if they were to preach this unpopular message. But this is the Word of God. If God said it, then following it must be the only way to be fully happy and to realize your greatest fulfillment in life. Another reason I'm preaching on this in the last, every woman is going to give an account as to what kind of a woman she was. You will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ will say, I made you a woman. I wrote in the Bible very plain and specific things about being a great woman. You sat on December 4th in the year 2005 and heard those things preached. Why have you chafed and rebelled and been slothful in your duties? Why have you taken your talent and buried it when you knew that I was a hard man and expected a return on the talent I gave you? Women, you'll give an account. I'm his ambassador. I'm your servant. I'm warning you in advance so that when you stand before him, you can stand there with a clean conscience and with confidence that you have fulfilled your role in this world. Every girl and woman should be praying what I prayed before you. Lord, teach me, convict me, and strengthen me to do what I'm about to hear. The most beautiful, the most beautiful, the most glorious, and the most esteemed women by God and men are the women that hear and follow what I'm about to tell you. The women of this world, for the most part, are whores and sluts in spirit and body. They're neither esteemed by God or men. A godly woman who is gracious and pure, who is virtuous and understands her role, who is submissive rather than contentious, 
who helps her husband well and loves her children is a glorious thing. A beautiful thing in the sight of God and men. Let's look at ten things that a woman is. And every woman should ask herself, am I doing that thing well? Because you'll give an account when you meet the Lord. The first thing the Bible tells us, and it was read already this morning, and it's found in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2, and that is the woman is a helper. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. God made the world a man's world. Now, you can call me a male chauvinist pig when I say that. I don't really care what you call me, because what matters to me is what the Lord's going to call me when I meet Him. Was I a faithful and a good servant or not? That's what matters to me. I don't care what you think. I know that God created this world and He created a man in it. And He put the man in charge of this world, but He saw that the man was lonely. He saw that the man, when he looked at the male lion, the female lion, felt lonely. He saw that the man, when he looked at the male eagle and the female eagle, was lonely. So he made a help meet for Adam. A woman, from the moment she wakes every morning till the last conscious thought she has at night, is to be asking the Lord to fill her role as being a helper. She should always be thinking, what can I do to help the man that God created me for? Because if there hadn't been a man, and if there hadn't been a need for a helper, you wouldn't exist. And that isn't demeaning to you at all. You have a great role, and it's the role God chose. It's not the role I chose. Don't resent me at all. If you have to resent someone, resent God. Prepare your arguments. Give strong reasons for why you object to His choice. I want to make something clear. There is no such thing as a helpmeet. I hate that word. I hate every time I hear it. My skin crawls, my fists clench, and I get angry. And the distinction is so minor, you're going to wonder, you need to get your anger under control. There is no such thing as a helpmeet. It is not a noun. And there's a reason for it. The reason that women have invented the word helpmeet is because they don't want to be helpers. They have figured out that the noun help me, which does not exist as a noun, is a more glorious term than a helper. This verse tells me that women were created to be helpers that are fit, suitable, and appropriate, which is what the word meet means when it's M-E-E-T, for the man. They're to be a helper. Now see, I like to make things as simple as possible. If I tell a woman, God made you to be a help meet, she wonders, what in the words a help meet? Is, is it because I meet? How do I help him? Well, I'm, you're to be a helper. In every way that you can help your husband, that's what God created you for. And we're going to look at some of those ways. I like to use Bible words, and I like to use Bible words the way the Bible uses them. It comes down to verse 20, and it says that after Adam had looked at all the animals and given names to every one of them, It said, but for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. And so to avoid confusion, let's focus on the word that a woman ought to be a helper. And God designed her to be a very appropriate, fit, and suitable helper for the man. Together, a man and a woman can accomplish great and wonderful things when she's helping him. And when he's loving her, and trust me, women, 
Just focus on yourselves. I'll take care of your husbands after break. If all of you women that know me know that it's coming. There's a bigger hammer coming. Because they're bigger boys. But for right now, you can forget that. You need to concentrate on yourself. I was made to be a helper. Lord, help me to be a helper. That should be your waking thought in the morning and your sleeping thought at night as you go to sleep. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 11.9 that the woman was made for the man and not the man for the woman. Now that backs up what we just read, doesn't it? Because right here in Genesis 2.18, we have a man. He's in charge of his world. He's named all the creatures that God has made. But man's lonely. Man needs a companion to share life with. Man needs a helper to get through life because man cannot make it by himself. He needs that helper. And so God made him a helper and together they can do great things. But if we're going to let the word be a fire and a hammer on our souls, and we should, the New Testament tells us that the woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. Your husband was not created by God to give you a life of leisure. Your husband was not created by God to help you. Don't worry, I'll take care of your husband. You were created to be a helper for him. That's the order. It doesn't say anything in the Bible about a man being a helper for his wife as far as the purpose for the creation of the man and the woman. This order of creation is important. It's so important that Paul even pulled it up in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he said, For the man was first formed, then Eve. The order of creation is something significant enough and important enough that Paul would resurrect it when writing Timothy and giving an explanation for why the woman should learn in silence with all subjection. Paul, why are you going to hold such a Neanderthal, outdated, prehistoric position on women? Because the man was first formed, then Eve. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Women, think about creation. Think about the world. Think about it being a man's world. Think about the reason you were created. And that will help you fulfill your role. And when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be able to give an account that you are a faithful helper to your husband. You know, the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 that two are better than one. Do you remember the reasons why two are better than one? Why Adam needed a helper? There was nobody to share the excitement of his accomplishments with. Because the Bible says they are a good reward for their labor when there's two people together. If there's just you, all by yourself, who do you get to share the good things with? So a woman gets to share. And she gets to praise and appreciate her husband for the things he accomplishes. It also says that who's going to help a single person up? If you're alone, who's going to help you up when you fall? So a woman's purpose is to support her husband. This is Ecclesiastes 4. It also says that how can one be warm when they're alone, but two together can have heat? A husband needs the comfort of his wife, her friendliness and and compassion and closeness. And then it says, who's going to help you fight enemies unless you have some others with you? And together, a husband and a wife can be a great team when the wife defends her husband. Defends her husband. It is hell on earth when a husband not only has to fight his foes outside his house, maybe his own children, but then he has to fight his own wife. 
The two of them should never be divided by children. The, the wife should always be praising, defending, and loyal to her husband, especially in front of her children. This is the word of the Lord. She's a helper. Now, Abigail knew it well, didn't she? When, when David proposed to Abigail, what was her response? Let me wash the feet of your servants. Abigail, now you say, well, she was just one of these badgered, beaten women that are the product of Christianity when it's preached by men like you. Oh, I've heard it and worse. But Abigail, what does the Bible tell us about Abigail? She was a woman of good understanding, and, and was she some dog? Or does the Bible say that she was a beautiful woman? She was a beautiful woman and a woman of good understanding. When she was proposed to by David, she didn't say, I'd like to wash your feet. She said, let me wash the feet of your servants. Now that is a helper. What an attitude to enter into marriage. She should have been throwing a party and popping the corks on champagne bottles because the next king of Israel had just proposed to her. But look at what she said. She should have been on the phone, two phones, talking to her girlfriends about the fact that David had just proposed to her. But no, she's offering to be a servant to his servants. What a woman. What a woman. There's a whole chapter about that woman in the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 25. She gives us a wonderful example. You know, and even in the church of God, the women can be helpers. What glorious statements are made in Romans chapter 16 about the women that helped the Apostle Paul. In Romans 16, we have these words that start off the chapter. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church which is at Sencria, that ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For she hath been a succorer of many, and of myself also. A succorer is a helper. She had helped many, and she had helped the Apostle Paul. A woman is a helper. She should always be looking at what I can do to help. She helps first with her husband. Then she helps with her children, and she doesn't help too much. And then she helps in the church of God. She's a helper. That's your role. God chose it. I didn't. God chose the terms of your role. I didn't. But I'm here on behalf of God to tell you in advance so that you don't waste your life frustrated and angry and then meet God and He's frustrated and angry because you squandered the life He gave you. Life can be precious, pleasant, peaceful, and fulfilling if you take your role that He gives you and submit to it. Women, you should plan. You girls that aren't married yet, you should plan. I want to be the world's greatest helper. I'm going to help my husband better than any woman has. I'm going to make my husband great by helping him. And I'm not going to tell him how to be great. I'm just going to help him by always being there for him. Girls need to be taught this role. And wives need to rise every day to fulfill that role. The first thing a woman should remember is God made her to be a helper. A woman should not be looking for her own fulfillment in life. She should be looking for her husband's fulfillment and how she can help him fulfill his role. That's the order that God's given. The second thing a woman needs to remember, that the woman is a subject. 
And a su- I don't mean a subject for discussion. I mean a subject under a ruler. The woman is to be submissive. She was created, first of all, as a helper, and that was when there was no sin in the world. I want you to know that so far, we've been in Genesis chapter 2. Sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3, the first six verses. So far, we've been in chapter 2, where the woman was created to be a helper before there was sin. She was already in a subordinate role because Paul said that she was made for the man, not the man for her. And Paul said the man was first formed, then Eve. Okay? So even without sin in the world, she was to be a helper. But then she blew it so badly in her dealings with the devil. By listening to the devil and obeying him and being deceived by him, that the Lord demoted her. The role that could have been a queen is less now because of sin. And we turn the page in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 to discover this from the Word of God. The Lord has appeared to Adam and Eve. He, he confronts Adam as to why he sinned. Adam blamed the woman. He confronts the woman. The woman, Eve, blames the devil. And so he gives the man, the woman, and the devil curses for what they did in the Garden of Eden. And here we have verse 16. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, these words aren't very popular anymore. You have not driven down any popular street in this town and seen a church sign out front that said, Husbands rule over wives. Or, wives, your desires are no longer yours, they have to be your husband's. These are not popular statements, but this is the Word of God, and this is how a family can get along, and how they can be happy, and how a woman can find fulfillment, and how she can meet the Lord and not be ashamed. And how she can have children grow up that don't resent her because they saw her defying her husband. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. And so we see a burden put upon the woman in the conceiving of children and the bearing of children. But the point we want is the last part of the verse, thy desire shall be to thy husband. That means your desire in life is going to be subordinate to his. His desires are going to rule over your desires. You are in in subjection under him. He is going to rule over thee. I have now promoted the man to have a greater distance over you because of what happened in Eden. He rules over you. He makes decisions for you. His desires become the desires of your life, and you follow Him. The woman is a subject. You know, the Bible tells us very plainly the order of authority in the universe. Do you remember it? At the top there is God. Below God there is the Lord Jesus Christ. Below the Lord Jesus Christ is the man, and below the man is the woman. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, where it says that the head of Christ is God, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of the man is Christ. That is God's hierarchical structure. Now, no more should Jesus Christ try to rebel against God, or the man rebel against Jesus Christ, than the woman should rebel against the man. It's just God's order, and it works well. 
All the angels understand it. They don't fight it. Do you know the Bible tells us about angels that they're all organized into principalities and powers, thrones, might, and dominion. They all have different levels of authority. Lucifer, the devil himself, was at the pinnacle of that angelic authority. And he's been cast down. Michael can handle him or get close to handling him by rebuking him in the name of the Lord. But those angels are all in ranked authority and they understand it and they don't rebel against it. And the Bible tells us that a woman ought to have long hair as an outward symbol of her submission to the authority of the man so that in the presence of angels, which are even in this room, she does not look like a rebel. That's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15 and 16. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're looking at the fact that the woman is a subject. She was created to be a helper. But Adam's been promoted over her further because of the sin in Eden. That's what we were told there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. Now we come to 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul is giving Timothy rules for his churches. And he tells Timothy how the women should conduct themselves. And in verse 11, he said, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. That answers every question about women speaking in the church. Verse 12, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. They are to be silent. That helps explain the word quiet, doesn't it? We don't need to go to the Greek about the word meek and quiet. Because here it's explained for us as silent, especially in the house of God. Silent. Let her learn in silence with all subjection. No usurping of authority. No questioning of a man's authority or his ruling in some matter. And here are the reasons why. Verse 13, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. See, the first rule Paul brings up is from Genesis chapter 2. The woman was made to be a helper of the man. Therefore, she's under his authority. She's only to help. She's not to to rule over him or to be opening her mouth, giving opinions all the time, especially in the house of God. She's under authority because of that order of creation from Genesis 2. Then, look at the next verse. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. That goes to Genesis chapter 3, where the woman sinned, and God said, your desire is going to be to your husband, and he's going to rule over you. And for those two reasons from Genesis 2 and 3, we have the subordinate role of the woman in which she is a subject. That means she obeys and submits to her husband. And this is important because it's not taught out there. And it's not taught on Christian radio. They only give it lip service. And it's not taught in marital seminars. They want to make everything today partnership. And the Bible doesn't make it a partnership. The Bible makes it a ruler and a subject. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, let's establish ourselves in the second point that the woman is a subject. This doesn't say anything about her being abused. This is not demeaning to a woman that has any understanding. This fact is no more demeaning or onerous than children being subject to their parents. Do you think children ought to rebel and throw a fit because they come into this world and have to obey their parents? Their parents can tell them everything, 
eat your peas. I don't care that they got cold while you sat there not eating them. Eat your peas. Parents can do that to children. And we all understand that relationship, that it's for the betterment of the world, and it's for our happiness, and it's for their training. And a woman should remember that. All the spheres of authority in the world are, to the, are for the benefit of man. They were ordained by the wisdom of God. Every man has to get up and go to work and kiss the feet of the man he works for in many, many ways and do what that man orders him to do. Every soldier has to salute and say, yes, sir, no matter what his commanding officer tells him, even if it's a machine gun nest that he needs to sacrifice his body for by absorbing a hundred rounds while the rest of the platoon takes it. And then women want to complain because they hear a little bit of preaching about being subject. They don't even know what subjection is. Men do it all the time. You know, you know what I've heard from women? But you don't have to sleep with your boss. Oh, come on. And soldiers die by being blown apart while they're charging a hill with a machine gun nest. And you want to complain. You know what kind of a woman ever thinks that? Any woman that has that little thought run through her mind, that is from the devil himself. That is from the devil himself. That is a scorner. That is a rebellious woman. You should not allow any thoughts like that. You should ask God to forgive you such thoughts. This is the Word of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 3 puts it this way, beginning in verse 1, Likewise. Now, whenever I see a likewise, what do you want to do? When I see likewise, I know that things are being compared. And so I want to look back at chapter 2, where I'm told that every man has to submit himself to the king, verses 13 through 17, and every man's got to submit himself to his boss, verses 18 through 25. Look at what it starts with. The man has to submit himself to the king. He's got to pay tribute. He's got to obey every ordinance of man. Does the woman ever say, well, I just don't like that... That thing that it requires out of me. Well, listen, I don't like wearing a shoulder harness. And I don't like driving 55 when the roads were made for 75. But what does that have to do with it? As a man, I'm told what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to submit. What about a boss? I've been there before. I've worked all night to prepare reports. And handed them over to men on men's desks. And had them look through it and say, I don't like the format. When I've worked for many, many hours putting together the best material possible for them to make a management decision, and they're going to fuss about the format? I know about rebellion in my heart. You know what? If he doesn't like the format, yes, sir, we'll change the format. And if your husband doesn't like the way you make the bed or fold the underwear, or that you put the toilet paper with the, with the sheets coming off the back instead of off the top, then change it. Yes. Change it. Mm-hmm. If your husband doesn't like you squeezing the tube of toothpaste in the middle because you lose half the tube and you break it in half before you're done, then start at the bottom just like he does. Stand there and scrape it up slowly with the handle of your toothbrush. If that's what turns him on, be a helper and be in subjection to him. You say, that's obsessive, compulsive, and crazy. And it's common. (laughs) But this is subjection. You say, well, (laughs) it is. 
Look at this verse. I like the word likewise. We want to read the Bible with understanding. The, the men have already been told how they have to submit to government and their boss. Likewise, ye wives. See, they haven't even been considered yet. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. You don't have to submit to everybody else's. Just your own. That if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. That word conversation there is not how you talk. That word conversation in our 1611 Bibles is your lifestyle, your manner of living. It's how you live. And so look at what the Lord is telling us. That men can be converted to the gospel by women who are very pure in the way they live and they're very fearful of their husbands. They're in subjection to their husbands with fear as we're going to read shortly. Now that fear is not terror. That fear is the same fear we have of the Lord. Is our, our, our fear of the Lord is not terror. Our fear of the Lord is loving reverence. We want to please Him. We don't want to offend Him. That's how... The Bible uses the word fear when it comes to this relationship. The same with fearing the king. We want to do it for conscience toward God, and sometimes we fear the king because he does carry the sword, as Romans chapter 13 tells us. That helps us fear him, doesn't it? And I haven't seen any husbands in here with anything strapped on this morning, either swords or colts. 45, come on. Nothing like that. Look at verse 3. Who's adorning? These women. These great women who might even be able to convert their husbands by their lifestyle. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. Don't be like worldly women that emphasize all the outside. Don't be worldly and always worrying about how you look. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. In that which is not corruptible even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. See, it's called the hidden man of the heart because other men can't see it as well as your husband can. Your husband knows how submissive and obedient and cheerful and in submission you are as a wife. And it tells you that that part of you, that part of you can make a beautiful woman. All the women in any church can easily be ranked from the most beautiful to the least beautiful, and I'm not talking about their face, hair, or bodies. I am talking about their character. Every man and every woman knows it and could sit down with a piece of paper and just write them right down. And I'm I'm saying that for you ladies and you young girls. Look at the ones that are highly esteemed and look at their character because it's this meek and quiet spirit, and girls, it doesn't corrupt The bodies and face and hair that you have right now are all going to go away. But a meek and quiet spirit just gets better. Verse 5, For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. We had the word fear in verse 2, coupled with fear. And we have the word fear in verse 6. And verse 6 tells women, don't ever be in subjection to your husbands so much that you would disobey God. Don't ever be in subjection so much to your husbands that you would be confused about what is right and wrong. 
If your husband tries to get you to do something that's wrong, wrong in the sense of the Bible, not wrong in your preferences, but wrong in the sense of the Bible, you don't have to obey him. We ought to obey God rather than men. Here's the passage. Another passage that tells women to be in subjection to their husbands with fear. And by doing it well, they could even convert an unconverted husband. And do you know what that says about the presentation of the gospel they make to the world? Those women of you that work in, the, in office situations or out in the world, you know how women are running down their husbands all the time. How women are demanding that they have at least equality with men. On the job, in the home, with the children, in divorce court, wherever. Every time that you are living out there, adorning yourself well, modestly, and having that meek and quiet spirit, you are defending the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you are shutting their mouths the way they ought to be shut. By a glorious woman. You know, under this point, we can look at verses like Ephesians 5 where it says, Wives, have a good time in life. How do you have a good time in life? Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands in everything. As unto the Lord. I love that little expression, that little adverb there, as unto the Lord. There is no husband in this room, nor has there ever been a husband, that is like the Lord. Now he may get, you know, he may be a distant cousin at times. But still a woman is to do it as unto the Lord, because when you are submissive to your husband, you are obeying the Lord. And you can do it as unto Him. Meaning as unto the Lord. Colossians 3.18, same thing. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. This is a fit thing for Christian women to submit themselves to their husbands. And Titus 2.5 tells older women to teach the younger women to be obedient to their own husbands. You know, that used to be in marriage vows until about 30 years or so ago, Princess Diana decided that she didn't like that little phrase, and so it was pulled out, and there was a big public ado over it, that marriage vows used to say that I will obey him. And see, that's straight from uh, the good book of English-speaking people, but when some princess... And she was no princess, she was a whore. Everyone knows she was a whore. It was well documented. She is not your role model. And thankfully, she's long gone, and she's found out that the way she was living was not a godly way at all. But they took out the words, I will obey him. But that's straight from the Bible. The second rule, or the second thing that a woman ought to think about is being a subject. He's my ruler, which means, according to Genesis 3, his desires are going to be mine. I'm going to make his desires mine. I'm going to desire the things he desires. The woman's a follower because of that, obviously. She's to have a meek and quiet spirit, which we've already looked at. And a meek and a quiet spirit means she's going to follow her husband. Can you imagine Mrs. Noah? You know, we don't read one good thing about Mrs. Noah's character except one thing we know. She climbed into a boat in their backyard when there hadn't been any rain ever. And everyone was certainly making fun of them, but she followed her husband into the ark. Women are followers. You say, do I have to take my husband's last name? Yes. Can I prove it with the Bible? Mrs. Noah. That's not how I would prove it. Do you know what it says in Genesis chapter 5? 
It says, male and female created he them, and he called their name Adam. Have you read your Bible that closely? Male and female created he them, and he called their name Adam. Where did that woman get the name Eve? Did she get that from God? No, God called her Adam. Who named her Eve? Adam did. Adam gave her a personal name distinct from his own so that he could have something to call her so that she would know that he wasn't talking to himself. I'm serious. It's in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20. She, he called her name Eve because she was the mother of all living. But God called them both Adam. You know, today they want to keep their own names, but not in the Bible. She's a follower. You know, I think of Abraham. You know, women don't like to sell their houses to go live in a tent. Are there any husbands in here that think their wife would cheerfully give up their four-story house with all of its bedrooms and bathrooms and go camp out indefinitely in a wilderness that you didn't know anything about? Mrs. Abraham did it, didn't she? And her name was Sarah. And we were just told in 1 Peter chapter 3 what a great woman she was because she called her husband Lord. She understood that she was a subject and that he was her Lord. Now this was no title. You know, this was no Shakespearean title, Lords and Ladies. When Sarah called Abraham Lord, it wasn't to him. It was in her heart talking to herself about her husband. If you go back to Genesis, you can find it there. When Sarah called Abraham Lord, it wasn't to flatter him. It was because she understood the relationship that way. She said, am I going to give my Lord pleasure when I'm this old? She she was well... You all understand. Come on. She was well past menopause and she says, am I going to be able to give my Lord pleasure this old? (laughs) And you know what? She did. And she lived another 37 years. That's when she called him Lord. You can read it in the Bible. The woman's a follower. Should a woman leave her family? Should she be able to leave her family cheerfully to be with her husband? Yes, indeed. Who's the greatest example in the Bible of a woman leaving her family to cheerfully follow her husband and and his family? Ruth. That's true. Ruth left her nation, left her family, and chose Naomi. But she didn't even have a husband yet. She was choosing the God of Naomi. But Rebecca, do you remember Rebecca? Her mother and her brother and her father came to Abraham's servant and said, Please, can she stay here ten days to say goodbye? They really like to hug and kiss in that family, Mom. Ten days to say goodbye. They asked for Rebecca to stay. But Abraham's servant said, Listen, the Lord's given His will. It's obvious. I want to get back to my master. And when you've got a man that's 60 and single... It's time to get home. So they said, let's call the young woman. And here comes Rebecca. She was beautiful. And she was gracious. How do we know she was gracious? Because when Abraham's servant arrived at the well and said, may I have a drink of water? She drew water for him and then said, let me draw water for all your camels as well. Camels don't drink a quart at a time. They called Rebecca. You know what she said? I'll go right now. I'll go right now. That's a follower. You know, any relationship that has too many chiefs and not enough Indians doesn't work. That's right. 
We run into that on the job. We run into that in government. And we run into that in the home. Someone needs to be the follower, and God's already made that rule for you women. Your husband is your leader, and you need to be the follower. And so we've learned three things. I was created by God to be a helper to my husband. Because I blew it so badly in the Garden of Eden through my mother Eve, God has subjected me under my husband, and his desires are going to be my desires, and I'm going to follow him the rest of my life. What he decides to do, I'm going to do it with him, and I'm going to do it cheerfully. And when I stand before the Lord, the Lord's going to know that whatever my husband wanted, that's what we did, and I did it cheerfully. And sometimes what he did was really dumb, but I did it cheerfully anyway. I did not say that every husband only makes wise decisions, but every good woman acts like every decision her husband makes is wise. Unless there's sin involved. So we come to another point. The woman's a lover. In 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, we have these five verses that tell us about the woman. In the passage that was read this morning, when Eve was brought to Adam after his nap, in which the Lord took one of his ribs and made a woman, they were both naked and they weren't ashamed. There was no sin in the world. Before sin, nakedness and physical bodies and the sexual relationship was a wonderful thing. Before sin. Sin didn't alter it except to mean that they put clothes on. The Lord clothed them with skins of animals so that they covered it up to anyone else, but they still had the same relationship that they'd once had. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 puts it this way. Beginning at verse 1, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And that doesn't mean men and women can't shake hands, can't hug, or anything like that. This is a euphemism for not having a wife. Because if you read the rest of these verses, you can discover that easily. And I've preached through 1 Corinthians 7 before. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication... Let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. See, there's the explanation for touching in verse 2. To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Verse 1, if you can do without marriage, given the distress that was in Corinth, Paul said it was better. Verse 2, however, because there is great temptation made for fornication when people are single, get married. Verse 3, Husbands owe wives, and wives owe husbands due benevolence. Benevolence is sexual kindness. Due is what they need and want. It's that simple. You say, it's, it sounds kind of euphemistic. That's correct. The Holy Spirit in this place was rather polite and kind and courteous with the choice of words. Not so in the book of the Song of Solomon. Not so in other places in the Bible. But right here, due benevolence means sexual kindness that your spouse wants, not what you want. Due benevolence. What is due them, what they need and what they want. Verse 4, because the wife doesn't have the authority of her own body, but the husband. 
The husband has the right, the privilege, the authority, the power to his wife's body whenever he wants it, however he wants it, wherever he wants it, how often he wants it, and vice versa. The woman has power and authority and a right and a claim and a privilege over the husband's body for her satisfaction. And that's verse 4. And verse 5 is, don't break this rule, don't interrupt this habit, unless it's by mutual consent and only for prayer and fasting. And as soon as you fasted and prayed for a while, get back together. And it means get back together in bed, lest Satan tempt you for your incontinency. So the fourth point is the woman is a lover. The book of the Song of Solomon is a long book, eight chapters. And the whole book describes an erotic, romantic love story with a lot of physical activity and an appreciation for physical attributes of both bodies in a book of the Bible. And it gives us a role model for how a husband and a wife ought to think of each other and treat each other, and it gives us a picture of Jesus Christ loving the church and the church loving Jesus Christ back, and I will not exclude either one of those from the application of that book. But there it is in the Bible. The woman's a lover. There is nothing demeaning, there's nothing lowly, there's nothing carnal, there's nothing ungodly about the sexual part of marriage. It's good. Everything God created in the beginning was good. And as long as you're covered in public and modest in public, then what you do at home is wonderful, and you ought to be like the woman in the Song of Solomon. Now, how, how long, I want to ask the women. You know, women should ask good questions. They don't have to ask them right now, because it says... If a woman will learn anything, and especially on this subject, let her ask her husband at home. But women ask, how often is normal? How often is right? How often is good? That's the man's choice. Listen, if you married a stallion, and he needs it three times a day, then that you made that choice and God made that choice. And that's his due benevolence. I'll ask you this question. Here's how to answer it real simply. The last time you fasted, how long did you go without food? Women, don't answer me because we don't want to embarrass you. But the last time you fasted, how long did you go without food and spending the time in prayer? Well, the Lord says that's as long as you should ever be apart from Him, giving Him His due benevolence. Do you understand how I got that out of that passage? You say, well, my husband's older now. And he doesn't need it as much as he used to. Well, then let him say no. It's one of the great privileges of a husband to say, you whip me. Uncle. Uncle. That's a good word to a woman. Uncle. Instead of, instead of sending him to sleep, burning up and angry that he's married an odious, selfish woman, you will give an account for it. And I want to tell you something. The Lord's going to have the last laugh. Because the Lord's a man. And he laid it out right here. And he just told you the frequency. And if you can't figure it out, send me a blank email to some stupid hotmail address and I'll write you back. Ask any woman in the church that's following the Lord and obedient. I'm not angry. I just want to warn you before you get to heaven. Say, well, I just wasn't raised 
to think that sex was very important. We'll get over it right now, this morning, today. Because it's very important to your husband. You know, I'm thankful that Rebecca was raised better than you were. She rode all that way on a camel. If I rode all the way, 400 miles on a camel, do you know what I'd want to do when I got off? I'd want a week's vacation in a soft bed. But do you know what, do you know what Rebecca did? She said, who's that man to the servant? That's my Lord Isaac. It says she laid it off her camel. Isaac stood there and the servant said, this is the one. He said, take my hand. And he led her into his mother's tent and consummated that marriage right there. Go read it in your Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 24. Read the Song of Solomon and ask the Lord to give you the spirit, the attitude, and the effort of that woman in that book because it's in the Bible for your learning. Sex is a very good thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a gift of God. It's just limited to marriage. And we crush it outside of marriage. And we protect all of our little girls who don't know how to say no by keeping them away from any situation that they would ever get into with a young man where they could be tempted. We don't want them to learn how to say no because that's not their responsibility. That's dad's responsibility. It's dad's responsibility to protect them from getting into a situation where they would be so sorely tempted. The woman's a mother. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the human race. Mothering is a big part of being a woman. And I'm not going to deny that because it's in the Bible. When Rebecca did say, I want to go right now, Mom and Dad. I'm ready to go right now. I want to meet my new husband. I've never seen him. What a cheerful woman. Can you imagine being delivered to some guy you've never seen before? They didn't have photo albums. Abraham's servant did not bring a laptop with rotating pictures. She said, who is that? That's the one. She jumped off her camel and said, let's go for it, mister. And they were married. But you know what her parents said to her when she left? Be thou the mother of... Thousands of millions or something like that. I believe it's thousands of millions. Look at that blessing. Be a great mother. You get to have children. And so we want to look at that for a woman, for a woman and for a moment. That the Bible exalts the fact that a, a woman is a mother. But before she thinks about her motherly duties, she has to put her husband first. If you women want one little rule that will help you all the way through life, your husband is always first over your children. Always. You distort God's role for your life when you put the children first. A woman that dotes on her children and doesn't dote on her husband is not even a woman. She is twisted and perverse. She is sick. She ought to be called a pedophile. Doting, the word doting, is showing love and affection and tenderness. And she better be showing that to her husband first, rather than her children. Her children come second. And if she will do that, she's going to have a happy husband, of course. And he's never going to be jealous of the kids. And second, her children are going to grow up understanding the proper relationship in the home. And they're going to perpetuate it in the world. A woman that gets her children first and lets those children, I don't care what age they are, Steal from her husband is cheating her husband and she's going to twist her children. They will not grow upright. 
And she's going to give an account of it when she gets before God. I have to get that out first. But after that, after you're taking care of your husband and doting on him and making him the most important person in your life and not letting the children come and steal away the affection, the time, the emotion, the energy to love your husband, then you be a loving mother. However, let me give you one more caveat. And that is the children that you bear are your husband's, not yours. And it's important to remember that and it will help things run smoothly in the family when your husband makes choices about those children. They're not yours, they're his. You bore them for him. We can prove it from all sorts of places in the Bible. You've never found a genealogy in the Bible yet that lists women. The genealogy always lists the men. How about in Proverbs chapter 5 where it says to men that with their wife they should have running waters in the streets. But it's the men's children. The passage was read this morning from Psalm 128 that says, The man that fears the Lord is going to be blessed with a fruitful wife and children around the table. They're both his. And it's important. that's important so that the woman does not feel like those children are just an extension of her, but they're his. Because there's going to come a point where a godly man is going to discipline the children and she has got to back off and let her man discipline the children. Women don't know how to discipline children like a man does. And so she needs to learn how to back off. Enough said on that. I love Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 3 on this subject. I hope the women have already heard what I've said in the way of caveats, but listen to this verse that Solomon could write about his mother. For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. A good mother looks at her children as tender and only beloved. She always loves them. They're always tender to her. And I wish all women would remember that. That if they have overbearing tendencies to ask too many questions, to make too many suggestions, that they would remember this verse. And instead of wanting to make suggestions, especially when the children are married, and want to keep making suggestions, which is unbelievable overbearing contention. The Bible says that like water dripping on a rainy day is a contentious woman. And a contentious woman is this simple. She always wants to make suggestions and tell you how you're doing it wrong and how you can do it better. Back off! Why can't you just love them? Why are you so hard-hearted? Back off! Every woman in here that has a strong personality, back off! Look at that verse. Tender and only beloved. Some of you would rewrite it and say, stupid and always making the wrong decisions, and I need to keep breathing for them even after they're married. Back off. They'll love you for it. Don't be overbearing to your children. Be loving. Be a loving mother. Do you know what only beloved means? Solomon could do no wrong. Do you know who got to tell him when he was wrong? Daddy. Daddy. My mother told me I was wrong a few times and, and whipped me every one of those times when I was little. But I also knew that no, no matter what score I made, almost any score that I made in a paper, I could bring home and 
she would praise me for it. If I ran, I was always the fastest. If I lifted weights, the strongest, until she was talking to her other son. <laughs> but it's the way a mother ought to be. You know, let, let us dads be the bad guy. You know, good guy, bad guy, good cop, bad cop. The mothers can be the tender and loving one. This is what the Bible tells me. This is what I'm trying to tell you. You know, in the, in the New Testament, it tells us, I will, therefore, that women marry, bear children, guide the house. It tells us in Titus chapter 2 that older women ought to teach the younger women to uh, remind their children, question their children, give lists of suggestions to their children, to love their children. I want to say this, that a barren womb, when I read the Bible, I've never had a womb, and I haven't had a barren one. But when I read the Bible, and I trust every word of it, when it tells me that a barren womb is a terrible thing in the world, that it's like a forest fire that can't ever get enough trees to burn up, that it's a painful thing for a woman. And though a wife has to submit to her husband, even in the matter of bearing children, because he is her ruler, Every husband should be mercifully considerate and understand that she has something inside of her that he's never had inside of him and can't relate to except by the authority of this book. And this Bible tells me that a barren woman is a barren womb and a woman without children is a very unhappy creature. And so every husband had better be mercifully considerate of that. The woman's a domestic. A domestic is a household servant, a household helper. After we've been through the fact that a woman is a helper, and she's a subject, and she's a follower, and she's a lover, and she's a mother, she's a domestic. It's her job to take care of the house, to take care of the home. Men are charged with leaving the house and going away where things would fall apart at home. The women aren't. In Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 5, It says that men, when they're married, are not to be charged with business so that they can remain at home. That's business away from home, business trips. For the first year of marriage, a husband needed to be at home and cheer up his wife because most of those wives had never known their husband before they got married to them. And they couldn't be charged with war. See, our nation doesn't ever thought of that one. A one-year honeymoon is what the Bible orders. didn't matter how dangerous the enemy was. God's going to take care of that anyway. War has never depended upon the number of soldiers in the field. It's dependent upon which side God is on. And he told the young men not to leave home even for war, but to stay at home for one year. But see, there's no rule like that in the Bible because something is assumed. The woman's going to be at home. And that doesn't mean home all the time, handcuffed in the kitchen. Because the, the passage has nothing to say about that. It means that she's not leaving on business trips all the time that would be to the detriment of that home. The woman's a domestic. And if you read Proverbs chapter 31, there isn't a thing missing in that household, is there? That woman is taking care of everything at home. When Titus chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us that women are to be keepers at home, that means they are to guide the house and not spend their time running about being busybodies in other men's matters and saying things which they ought not because they're idle. 
That does not mean that a woman has to stay at home all the time. If it means she has to stay at home all the time, that means she can't even go shopping. If you're going to take keepers at home and try to press some artificial understanding on those words, you can't leave the house. You can't go on a vacation. Be consistent with your use of words. I'll tell you how to interpret Titus 2.5. Go to 1 Timothy 5 and verse 14, and it will tell you. I will, therefore, the women marry, bear children, and guide the house so that the adversary has nothing evil to say about you because you're not gallivanting around town. Being busybodies... It says all this in 1 Timothy 5. Being busybodies in other men's matters. As long as you are taking care of the home, your husband's taken care of, the children are taken care of, the house is in good shape, things are getting done, you are welcome to apply your efforts outside the house. And do you know how I know this? Because of Proverbs chapter 31. We compare Scripture with Scripture. And that woman in Proverbs 31 had businesses and jobs outside the house that she did for the benefit of her family. And God said, that was a woman that's going to be praised. God said, who can find a woman like this? Who can not only bring family, who can not only bring money into the estate, but also take care of children, also take care of a husband, build up a house in such a way that the man has a great reputation in public, not because he's great, but because he married great. Wow. Proverbs chapter 31. The woman's a domestic. Her first duty is at home. If she's keeping her home, then she can work beyond that. And it's up to her husband to decide when, where, and how, and how much. You know, the Bible gives us examples. The woman of Shunem was a great woman. Do you know what it means about that? She was a rich woman. The woman of Shunem was a rich woman. But when she met Elisha the prophet and she wanted to take care of him, did she put that addition on her house herself? Or did she go to her husband and ask for the mercy of putting on a little bedroom for the prophet? She went and asked her husband. What about when her little boy started crying out in the field because from a brain aneurysm and said, my head, my head. The father, being typical of fathers, wanting to get the crop in, said to a young lad, carry him to the house. Sorry, guys. Nathan. Nathan one day couldn't breathe. Something was growing inside his throat, and it was 11 o'clock. And Sherry and Nathan came to me and said, Nathan's having difficulty breathing. I said, can you wait till after lunch, son? Well, this thing that was growing in there was growing about a quarter of an inch every ten minutes. And Sherry got him there just in time. So I understand all about Mrs. Shunem's husband. Can we do lunch first, son? Then we'll take you to the doctor. And they got him there just in time for a doctor to see his face turning blue, pry open his mouth, and ram straight right down through his throat because it had closed shut. Well, that's the Lord's mercy overruling foolish fathers who can't see the end from the beginning except it's time to do lunch when we owned a restaurant. The little boy is brought to the house by a lad. The mother says, take him up to the prophet's bed and put him on that prophet's bed. And she went out in the field and she said, Sir, may I have a couple servants to run and see the prophet? And the old man said, Today ain't no holiday. What do you want to go see a prophet for today? I promise that everything will be good. Go. She took care of her home, and she asked her husband 
for any changes like that. And the husband gave her leave because he trusted her. Remember, the Bible says a virtuous woman, she can be trusted. Her husband will have no need of spoil. And he said, go, even though it was a terrible time for it. She went, and you know what happened. The boy had already died, but the prophet came and raised him from the dead. The woman's a domestic. Proverbs 31 is beautiful. Keepers at home just means that your primary duty is at home. And the real emphasis of those words is not to be someone running around, dabbling in tennis, dabbling at the, at the gym, dabbling in shopping, and living a life of leisure in other people's matters, and, and getting to be a gossip. That's the general meaning of Titus 2.5, and you know that by comparing it with 1 Timothy 5. Because when you go to Proverbs chapter 31, you're shown a woman that works outside the home. The woman's a worker. Now, when I read Genesis 2.18, and it says, But for Adam there was not found a help, meat for him. And we explain that as being a helper, then we know that the woman's a worker. The Victorian age of a hundred years ago, Roman Catholicism. Have you ever seen a picture of Mary? Supposedly the greatest woman ever. Is she usually doing this? Have you ever seen her mopping her brow with sweat? Or is she just sitting there serenely in a rocking chair with some crown of gold and bright light swirling over her head and she's got some nude baby that for some reason is staying warm without clothes, and he's got a little circle over his head. And she's just got this serene little look on her face. You know, the whole world has been taught by Catholicism that that's a woman. That isn't a woman. That's a lazy sluggard. She ought to starve to death. That is not a woman. I'll tell you about Mary. She had hair under her arms. She sweat. She worked hard. She strengthened her arms. If she had all the kids that I read about later in the New Testament, she worked very hard. She had a pile. She didn't end with Jesus. She just kept right on having them. There's at least three, three other brothers and three sisters named. We get the, we've been given the wrong idea of a Christian woman. And yes, I'm making war against it. A Christian woman is, the, is described by the Bible. A Christian woman does not get up in the morning in her bathrobe. Barely make it out there to hand him a cup of coffee as he goes out the door and gets in his vehicle to drive to work. Then she comes back in, breathes a sigh of relief, sits down, listens to Jimmy Dobson for 30 minutes on the radio, calls her friends, sticks a load of laundry in the new wash machine that her husband got her by the grace of God that was a witty invention, gets on the phone again, surfs the internet, and then calls her husband at 3 o'clock and purrs in his ear, can you bring pizza home for supper? She hasn't done a thing. That's not the woman of the Bible. Go read Proverbs 31. I'll tell you women something. I get scared at the 31st of every month. Do you know why? Because I have to write about some verse in a chapter, but I'm glad there's not a chapter like that for me. It's a hard chapter. I look in there, that woman is burning the midnight oil. But we know that there's a limit on it. We know that King Lemuel's mother is just giving him a very strong lesson that he better look for a woman that's a worker. All you young girls, how much do you work? Andrea, how many loads of laundry did you do this past week? Don't answer. It could be, it, it could be bad for you. Guys, she was just, she was trying to signal me that it was 
just scores. <laughs> Don't ask her mother. Work. A woman is a worker. And I want to tell you girls something. If you think that you're working hard because you've got a few little assignments in your life, you're wrong. Come, come, come and talk to daddy. This daddy will tell you what it's going to be like when you get married. This daddy is very graphic. Ask my oldest daughter about what it's like to be married and to have children, to have, to have five children when you're Mrs. Ray, Eric Carnell, to have eight children when you're Mrs. Sherry Crosby. That's seven children and a high-maintenance husband. Do you understand? Being a wife's a lot of work. And every one of you young men should look through the congregation and say, which one, which of the young girls in here really works? Really can work. Can get a lot done and never complains. Never say, listen, these words are unacceptable for a woman. I'm so tired. Oh, you're kidding me. From what? Be cheerful about it. If you're doing enough, he'll recognize that and tell you to back off. But guys, don't ever marry a woman that says, I'm so tired. Because oh, guess what? You ought to just get a recorder of that because you're going to listen to it the rest of your life. Amen. A woman has a lot of work to do, and I'm not making light of that. But a, a, a good helper, how many of you show up and walk into your boss's office and just tell him, I'm so tired. Can I just go sit in the lounge this afternoon? How, how far do you get in the job? Shown to the door. She's a worker. When I look in Proverbs 31, and I've taken you there before and I've written about it, when you look in Proverbs 31 you say, these are the words of God telling us about women. And you look through and you say, what's the overriding character trait? What are the things that I can list in just a few words on what kind of a woman I ought to marry? You know what comes first. It's verse 30. She needs to fear the Lord. What's the second thing that screams at you from just about every single verse? She's a worker. She's diligent. She's, she has a time, she has a sense of time urgency. She's driven. She never backs off. She's always driving. What else could I be doing? And you know, work is its, work can be its own reward if you love work. It's all attitude. The men in here know, I hope that all the men know, work can be a pleasure. It's a choice. She is a worker. Women, if you want to fulfill your role, you are made to be a helper, and that help is a whole lot of work. You know, when I read Proverbs chapter 31, where's her husband? Sitting. In the gates of the city, he's sitting. I get embarrassed. But then I read it. And I read about what it means to sit in the gates of the city. He's on the city council. He's doing a responsible job. But he's not at home washing the dishes with her. She's tearing those dishes up or she's got a servant called a dishwasher to do those dishes for. And she's doing everything that she can to contribute at a higher level to the advancement of the family estate. That woman's out doing commercial real estate development by finding a field, identifying it, measuring cash flow, determining what product could be planted on that field that would generate the best revenues for the least amount of labor to make the, to give it the highest return on investment. That is all right here in Proverbs 31. And she plants a vineyard. 
And she knows that her product is good. And she has confidence and she's driven. Like I wrote you women this week from Proverbs 31. Later on it says she manufactures girdles and delivers them to the merchantmen. That isn't singing nursery rhymes to your children. That isn't making toast and doing two loads of laundry and saying, I'm so tired. I made toast and did two loads of laundry. Well, when was the last time you took those two loads of laundry down to a river and beat them between stones? When was the last time you took them out and hung them on the line? You have all the witty inventions to make it easier. And that doesn't... I'm not picking on women. I want to tell you what the Lord expects of you before you meet Him. I want to make war against that caricature of a woman that is in our minds from the Catholics and from the Victorian age that a woman sits at home serenely, walking slowly through the house, having a cup of tea, sitting out on the back on the patio, drinking a little bit of coffee, enjoying the birds while her husband's at work. No, if, if that ever happens, it's the other way around. The husband sits on the back deck reading the Wall Street Journal and drinking his coffee and thinking about what else, what other decisions he ought to make for his family while his wife scurries around to build the family in the house. That's what you get from reading Proverbs 31 and not letting any fear of man or fear of this generation cloud your judgment. She's a Trojan. She can get so much done. She's a worker. I hope I've said enough about that false version of a woman because I want to deal a death blow to it. And you know the women, I'll tell you something, I'll tell you a secret. The women that I've heard that take Titus 2.5 and say keepers at home means I have to stay at home and can't work outside, they're lazy women. They're lazy women. They don't want to get up and get dressed. They lounge around the house in sweatpants and so forth. You know, they want to sit at home and justify themselves by sitting on the Internet. They'll sit on the Internet and look up sermons and try to do spiritual research when God never called them to do that. They become the spiritual leaders of the family and all they're doing is living a life of leisure by staying at home. Listen, they ought to have a sense of time, urgency, and responsibility and pressure put on them so that they have to do a lot. Do you know that you can get done a whole lot more than you think when you're in the middle of it? Work expands to fill the time available for its completion. If you'll give yourself a few more assignments, you'll still get it done. And I'm not trying to torture you women. I'm just trying to tell you there is a spirit and an attitude and an idea out there that is wrong that we want to make war against. So that we don't end up meeting the Lord and Him being disappointment, disappointed in your level of productivity. Because Proverbs 31 is all about production. Do you know what it is? What kind of a curse it is to a nation? And we're told this in Ezekiel 16 that Sodom was not only burned up because they were Sodomites. Sodom was burned up because they were proud, they were full of bread, and there was an abundance of idleness in her daughters. Young women didn't work hard enough. Andrea, since I've picked on you once, one more time, how many cows have you milked in the past week? How many eggs have you gathered? How many cows have you fed by pitching the hay to them? How much butter have you churned? How much kindling have you chopped because your big brother wasn't around? 
Where did Isaac find Rebekah? Sitting at home, just having rushed out of the bedroom after working on her curling iron? Where did Isaac find Rebekah? Doing a videotape to Jane Fonda? Exercise? See, if a girl ever got a job, she wouldn't need very much. You know, Heather has to run five miles a day at Milestone. The job kind of gives her some exercise, doesn't it? She exercises anyway, but I'm talking about young girls. Where was Rebecca found? She was found at a well. Where was Rachel found? And she was a beautiful girl. Where was she found? At a well with sheep. She was out there working. When you find a girl like that, guys, and she fears the Lord, she fears the Lord and she's a hard worker, jump, jump at her with both hands. Ask her dad first, but jump at her with both hands. You want her. You want her. That's as far as we're going to go this morning. Those are six points. The woman was made to be a helper because she was created second for Adam. She was made a subject because of the fall in Eden and is to be submissive to her husband and to do whatever he wants her to do short of sin. She's to be a follower, a lover, a mother, a domestic, and a hard worker at all these things. May the Lord bless us to have great women. We already do. I love all of you women. We have a great church of women. The men tell me that. I tell it to you. I'm very thankful for you. You're very different from this world. But can we press on and be even better? That is our desire.